Dr. Bill Schweitzer, MTW missionary to Gateshead, England, church planner, preacher of the gospel of the sovereign grace of God. We're so very grateful that the Lord has brought all of our missionaries who serve in these various parts in the world to be with us tonight, but especially thankful for Bill and the preaching of the word of God. Bill, I wonder, before, if you come for a moment, before you preach, and uh, Bill and I, again, uh, were in a missions conference together this past week, and that was a real delight for me, and I hope to be able to say a few more things about it at some point to the congregation, renewed friendships and, and fellowship with people we've known for many years in some, in some occasions, meeting new people. But um, something that Bill always does a very good job on with, with, uh, when he has opportunity is helping us to understand where Westminster Confession uh, churches are in their progress in England right now. And uh, I don't know if you plan to say anything in the sermon or not, but could you just take a minute, tell us, you know, com- just compare and contrast to the Puritan era, tell us where things were when you first got there, where things are now um, in that land where the Westminster Confession of Faith was, was drawn up. And then, brother, I'm going to sit down and you can continue on. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing in the providence of God, the the cycles and fluctuations of things in the world. Uh, I'm a fan of Augustine. Many of us probably are. Uh, but his land of North Africa, which he was a bishop in, there were many other godly bishops like him, there isn't much of the Christian church to be found in North Africa. What's, what was once a great stronghold of the faith is uh, just not even there, really. doesn't register as a blip. And so we know that the Lord in his own reasons sometimes blesses and sometimes withdraws his hand of blessing. And I guess that's the way it is with with England. Now we know, by the way, that he is just in so doing. We can be certain that this was not an unjust withdrawing of, of God's hand. But just to recap what you probably know, if anyone had a copy of the Westminster Confession, you would have on it a picture of Westminster, the great church in... London, where this was drawn up. And this was, of course, in the, the middle of the uh, 17th century. And for a brief moment in history, the whole country was Puritan. They all, by the official faith, not that they all believed it in their hearts, of course, but the official legal state religion of England, as well as Scotland, was Westminster Confession, Presbyterianism. Yes, just the confession of this church, uh, which would be very conservative even by American evangelical standards. That was the law of the land for a while. But, of course, um, people of the world don't always like to be under the sway. They say to Christ, we will not have this one to reign over us. And that's precisely what they did. They, re- they had a restoration of the king, the monarch, who had very strong Roman Catholic leanings. And um, eventually, under that restoration, all the, the Puritans were kicked out and the restoration ministers were brought in. And they were the worst of the worst. They were there to get, just to get a paycheck. They were there to be gentlemen of leisure. And the church rotted under their watch. And very, by the time of the, the 18th century, uh, the church had already gone through a, a, low, uh, a low ebb. Now, praise God, God had mercy on them, brought them back up again, um, brought them back up into a, a pretty good place because of the evangelical awakenings and revivals that would happen later on, particularly under George Whitfield. 
But uh, things went down again. And particularly, if there is one part of the church in England that had suffered, it was certainly the Presbyterian church. So, in the 1970s, um, there may have been, uh, from the 70s until the late 80s, there were perhaps three Westminster Confession Presbyterian churches in England. Now, we can be very thankful that uh, a couple more were added, and that over the the years, uh, not since I got there, but since uh, the EPCW, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in England and Wales, has been going since uh, the early 90s, that number is now 15, for which we're very, very thankful for. There are also some international Presbyterian churches, the denomination of Francis Schaeffer, also there, so that uh, today there are something like 24, uh, two dozen Westminster Confession churches in England and Wales, again, for which we're very thankful. But this is, for the native land of, of the Westminster Confession, that means that there is one of those churches for every two million people. Um, again, that compares to a friend of mine is planting PCA Church number 47 in the greater Charlotte area. And that's not even concluding the OPC and the ARP with a place that would have uh, far less than a million people. So that's just, just for scale there. Well, with that, then let me begin our, our sermon tonight. I again bring you greetings from the church in England. It is a good thing that we have fellowship one with another, something which I hope to return to later on in my application of this sermon. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we stand before you as those who are weak, those who have nothing in ourselves by which we can offer to you, by which we can serve you, by which we can do the things that you call us. And even, Lord, listening to a sermon with profit, even to worship God in our hearts because of the word of God, these things are impossible for us. We pray, Lord, that you would grant to us the strength supernaturally through your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn to Ephesians chapter 6 particularly looking at the well-known passage regarding spiritual warfare there in, say, verses 10 to 20. And tonight I want to have special focus on what this passage means for missions. And I don't think it's a stretch. I don't think I'm imposing something artificially upon this text. I think it's this native environment. I think that is the situation in which it was written originally with Paul, as we'll see, is what he is asking for his people, the people in this church of Ephesus, to pray for him. And the spiritual warfare which he described, it was inherently about the work of the gospel. It was about the work of missions, I think. Now, before we get into this, let me just say something which you probably know, but I just want to remind you of, that the work of the mission of the church is hard. Now, if for some reason you have heard the prosperity gospel, some some other church, and by accident you happen to find yourself here then I want to break the bad news to you. This this Christian life is not easy. It is hard and it is dangerous. This is, look, um, Matthew 16, 24. What does Jesus say to his disciples? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I'm from Florida. We don't have crosses, but we do have electric chairs. And if I said to someone, take up your electric chair and follow me, what do you think that would mean to them? It's not a, it's not a, I'm not, I'm not insulting anyone who wears a cross as a jewelry, but it's not something beautiful. It's not something pretty. 
It's a horrible instrument of death. That's what taking up your cross means. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And where was he going? Where was this Lord, where was this Lord of ours going? To Gethsemane, where he's going to be arrested, and then he's going to be condemned, and then he's going to be tortured, and then he's going to be killed. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what the Christian life, that's the entryway, that's what's written over the entryway. Now you and I know that when you come through that entryway after he's made that warning, there are many wonderful things. But we have to get this straight, that the situation in this life is one of suffering and persecution. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now is the time of suffering and humiliation. As with Christ, he was, this is his time of his humiliation. And hard work. Some people don't like to hear such things. But this is straight from the Word of God, as we'll see, I hope. And so we, don't, we can't forget, as we begin, as we think of this work of missions, it is hard, it is difficult, it is blood, sweat, and tears. That's what's going on. And I admire you for being so involved, I do. Because I know it's not easy. And if there's some of you who are thinking about being more involved in missions, either in going or in sending, I want you to understand this is hard work. But you know what? It is just a subset. It is just part of the larger picture of the whole Christian life. It's not easy. Now, with that, I, I want us to see the nature of this work. And this work, the work of missions, it is fundamentally spiritual in nature. And that helps us to understand many things, doesn't it? And if it were something else, if the nature of this task were something else, then our methodology would be different. Our weapons would be different. They would be carnal. They would be in terms of the wisdom of man. They would be in terms of psychology. They would be in terms of business methodology and all the rest of it. But it's not. It's spiritual. It's supernatural at its deepest, most important level. And all of our thinking about missions has to be grounded in that fundamental reality. We must use, therefore, this, this supernatural strength and the supernatural weapons that God puts into our hands. And again, I've changed the title. It is tonight, Supernatural Strength for a Spiritual Mission. Supernatural Strength for a Spiritual Mission. And these three points. First, that the enemy is spiritual. Secondly, the strength we need is spiritual. And third, the weapons we have are supernatural. Supernatural strength for a spiritual mission. First, we see that the enemy is spiritual. As we turn to our text, Ephesians 6 and verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why? What's the reason that he gives? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, first of all, notice things about our our enemy. The first thing to notice is that the enemy is real. He's real. He's not just talking about him as a bogeyman. He's not just trying to scare him. It's obvious that Paul knows that this enemy is real. He has experienced it. Certainly been revealed by God in inspired scripture to him. That this enemy is very real. And we have to be convinced of the reality of our enemy. If we're going to do the things that God has called us to do. Because again, they're hard. Right? 
Now, I know, I'm thankful that many of you have served in the military. I'm amazed of how many I met today who mentioned uh, we were encouraging and giving thanks for one another in our military service. We're grateful for it. But, you know, body armor, some of you have worn it. In fact, today's stuff, although in some sense is much better than what used to be around in previous times, it's, it's heavy. They keep adding to it. There's more and more of it. There's the, this part and there's this part. And of course, there's a helmet and the goggles and all the rest of it. And inevitably, when you're wearing it, it's incredibly hot. So you're wearing this very heavy, very hot stuff that you wish you could just take off, and you will. And the, the Marines, the soldiers, will take it off if given a chance. Do you know what is the one thing that is going to enable us to keep that stuff on? Being willing to sweat it out? Because we're worried that somebody's going to blow us up. And if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't put it on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is the issue with spiritual warfare. These things that Paul is talking about, they are hard. They're not easy. They require a lot of discipline to use them. And if you don't believe that Satan is real, then you're not going to do it. You have to believe that he's real, first of all. I also want us to see that our enemy is subtle. It says, the wiles of the devil. That's the thing we've got to stand against. It's not the overt, easy, straightforward attack of the devil. It's the wiles of the devil. That word means cunning arts, deceit, craft, trickery. Satan just isn't obvious in the way that he deals with us. He, we know, for instance, back in Genesis chapter 3, we learn so much from Genesis 3, don't we? that he was more subtle than any other creature on earth. Sadly, Christians are too often naive. We should be like little children. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be like little children. That's the only way, in fact, we come into this kingdom. When we interact with this Bible, we don't come as German critics. We come as simple children. If the Bible says it, I believe it. It's as simple as that. But ladies and gentlemen, we need to be as wise as serpents when dealing with the world and the flesh and the devil, these enemies of the Christian. Wise as serpents. Yes, harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. Don't be naive. Satan is tricky. And he has these wiles by which we have to watch out for. Again, if it were straightforward, we could probably set up some sort of straightforward defense that's easy to maintain. It's not hard. But he's not. So he's real, he's subtle, and I want you to know he is spiritual. Mainly, that's the, that's the point here. That's the thing that Paul is driving home. He is not flesh and blood. That's what it says. He read in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now again, if you're not comfortable with the supernatural then you're not comfortable with biblical Christianity because it is fundamentally supernatural. Each and every significant part of the Christian life, the way we come in, the way that we are sustained, the way that we go out, all of these things, the way we're brought to, ha- to God in heaven, are supernatural to the core. It could not be any otherwise. Conversion, sanctification, resurrection, everything, the means of grace. And so therefore, our means of warfare are also going to be spiritual. And we must remember that our enemies... See, the problem is we can't see, right? We, we can't see God. Therefore, what's required is faith. 
we can't see Satan either. He's not flesh and blood. And the, the thing is that the enemy, the, the ones that God might be, or the ones that Satan might be using against us, because very often that's the case, we can't forget that they're not the real enemy. In fact, very much the work of missions is coming to those who are enemies of the cross. Those who, like Paul himself, stood against God and his people and persecuted the church of Christ to death, like we heard. That's very much the whole point. And we don't ultimately regard them as enemies, no. We have to understand that Satan and his wiles have them enslaved in darkness. And they are his, his drudges. Our real enemy is not them, but the one who stands as a puppet master behind them. Now, because the whole work, the whole nature of this work is so thoroughly spiritual and supernatural, I want to say this much before we move on to our second point, that we must despair of all non-spiritual means. Okay? If Paul had said this, roughly speaking, between 90 and 95% of this is supernatural. Between 90 and 95% of your enemies are spiritual. Now the other 5 to 10%, they're flesh and blood. Then we might have some warrant for using methods of man. Might have some warrant for using things that the world would recognize as being useful. But ladies and gentlemen, it's none. It's zero. It's none. And therefore we must despair once and for all of all worldly fleshly methods of this warfare. Now, secondly, we see that the strength we need is supernatural. The enemy, he's supernatural. And the strength that we need to stand against him is supernatural too. And before we get to these weapons, we have to understand that we need the strength to be able to wield them. No good having weapons in our hands if we don't have the strength to wield them. And the strength that we need is supernatural. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now, why does Paul have to say, be strong? Dads, fathers, when do you ever have to say to your sons, be strong? This is when they're being weak, right? And likewise, you see, that's the situation with Paul speaking to his people in Ephesus. It's because they either were or he knew good and well that they had a tendency to be weak. They had a tendency to weakness and they needed to be shored up. They needed to be strengthened. And he wasn't being mean. He wasn't being unjust in saying this. Because he knew that all men are weak. He knew himself to be weak. He says it more than once, over and over and over again, actually, in his epistles. He confesses his weakness. What else could he do? Because in ourselves, we have no strength. But what he says is, and this is the part, dads, that we sometimes forget. We, don't, we, we sometimes say, be strong, and we don't go on to say what Paul then says. As if they could be strong in themselves. That's not what Paul says. What Paul says is, be strong in the Lord, you see. Because if you try to tell someone to be strong, this jellyfish of a man, and there's no spine there, there are no muscles in a jellyfish, really. There's something there that makes it move, but there's, there's nothing very strong at all. It's just a jellyfish. And you say, be strong. It's just a jellyfish. It flops over. Paul says, be strong in the Lord. He has this almighty and infinite strength. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he can make the weakest of men to be very strong. And that's what he says is needed. We must be strong in the Lord. We end up being like Gideon. You remember how it went with Gideon? In Judges 6.12, the angel of the Lord finds Gideon, the most unlikely savior of Israel ever. He comes to him and he's there, he's threshing for it, but he's doing it. He's hiding from the Midianites. He's threshing his wheat in the vine press to hide it from the Midianites. And you know what the angel of the Lord says? The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And there's some irony, I think, in there. But in another sense, it's very true. Because that is precisely what Gideon was in the Lord. God made him to be a mighty man of valor. God made him so mighty in his, the supernatural power. And the whole story is designed to show us the supernatural and, and spiritual nature of our warfare. Don't bring that many, just bring, a few, just bring 300. Don't bother to bring many weapons. What we're more concerned about are trumpets and lanterns. And the whole point of this, and, and he goes and he's still, he's still cowering. And, you know, he wants to know something, so he, he's, he, he wants to find out intelligence from the camp. And they are shaking in their boots because it's a sword of God and of Gideon. This weak man who is hiding, he did become, he absolutely did become a mighty man in the power of God. Well, the strength we need, the only strength that we're going to have is supernatural. And that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He knew that the first step of that is to say, I am weak, to confess that weakness, to renounce our strength, the strength that we have in ourselves, and to seek that strength from above that was going to make him truly strong. So the enemy is supernatural. The strength that we need, therefore, is supernatural. And thirdly, we need to understand that our weapons, the weapons that God has given to us, are supernatural. Now Paul says it here. Paul establishes this principle probably even a little bit more clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He has a whole, so a wonderful treatise on this very thing. I, I sometimes think that the, the, the Corinthian church was pretty trendy. Of all the churches that we see, the, the Corinthian church, they weren't so concerned with personal holiness. They weren't so concerned with the, the ordinary means of grace. And they were, they were tempted in various ways. And Paul has to establish this principle to them. They have to, he has to say, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. They didn't think much of this apostle who was so weak and contemptible in appearance. They didn't think much of him. They wanted in their flesh, they wanted someone who was going to come as a great orator, speaking words of worldly wisdom which everyone would admire. Instead, they get this plain-spoken man whose greatest attribute was simply faithfulness. He was a faithful steward, and he had to tell him, look, this is the way that you should view me, as a faithful steward. He has to say, the weapons of our warfare are not going to look like what the world has. The things that we do in order to wage the work that God has given, they're not going to make sense to the world. 
Forgive me if I've shared this story before. It's useful, though. I remember reading in The Economist magazine. Anybody read, read The Economist magazine? Very sophisticated. And in The Economist magazine, they had a feature section with regard to the megachurch movement. And these people, these people who studied the economy and of business methodology and all the rest of it, when they turned to the subject of American megachurches, they didn't say, wow, this is amazing. We have no way to understand this. This is supernatural. This must be of God. No. They said, wow, these guys, they're good business practitioners. And they went down the line and they listed all of the principles of good contemporary business and good contemporary marketing and leadership and management. And they said the megachurch is, is hitting it on all cylinders, just like we would do if we were running it. What does it tell you? What is this universe for? Don't forget. It's for the glory of God. And brothers and sisters, even if we could make up some sort of methodology by which this church were filled to the capacity of double or triple the size of the building you have, what good would it do? Because at the end of it, man would receive the glory for it and you would steal it from God. The point of this universe and the point of this church and of the universal church is to give glory to God. And therefore, therefore... It must be supernatural. It must be his means. It must be his methodology, as your dear pastor said before. Now, all the items, by the way, as we see, we come back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 6. All the items of armament and weaponry in Ephesians 6 are spiritual. Now, funny thing, most of them are actually defensive in nature. The list, having girded your waist with truth... Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, these are body armor. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the boots. Having taken the shield of faith by which you're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation. All these things are defensive in nature. Supernatural, but defensive. Now maybe some other day we'll speak more of these things. But tonight I want to pass, unfortunately, very quickly on to the offensive ones. There is one offensive weapon, and that is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. An interesting thing is called the sword of the Spirit. And we, we must not forget that this Word of God is not some dead letter. It is something that the Word of God Himself brought into being. It was breathed out by God, by God the Holy Spirit, speaking to His inspired prophets. And we have these things as the product of the Holy Spirit. And you know what else? It doesn't stop there. We, we know about inspiration, but sometimes we forget about the other half of it, which is illumination. Do you guys know what that is? Right? It's not just that the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God in the first place. Believe it or not, the Word of God also inspires you guys to understand the Word of God. Do you know that as well? You need the Holy Spirit to understand it. And that's why it's so necessary and so requisite to pray for the Word of God. Pray for the preaching. Pray for the spread of the Gospel. Because only the Holy Spirit who authored this Scripture is going to make us to be able to understand it. It is a sword of the Spirit. Now this is a very, very good thing to keep in mind, I think. That the only offensive weapon that we have is the Word of God. We need to understand that. 
because it is a reminder of the nature of the mission that is given to us. We saw that, we read that this morning in Matthew 28. It seems so simple to me. Yet, unfortunately, it is a point that is so often missed. That the central work of the Word, the central work of, of Christ's church on earth has to do with the proclamation of the Word of God. I, I'll mention this little, little illustration here. Why... My, my work uh, in the Iraq war was, was nothing particularly special. I'm not really a combat vet in any real sense of that word. But one, one aspect of it is I was, I, I was a participant in this, this, uh, this meeting by which we were planning out the air war in Iraq. And I was surprised to find out, I don't know if you guys know this, that our main methodology for dealing with the, the missiles over there, the Scud missiles and the other things, wasn't actually to destroy them, but was to dissuade the battery commanders from using it. I kid you not. We would get in touch with them. We, we had these ways. Special forces were very active in these things. And we would pay them off if we could. We would do it. Or else we would threaten them. You know, look, if, you, if somehow power comes down when the, fire, when the, the order from the, the leader comes down to you to fire your weapons, hey, that's not going to be a problem because we're going to be in charge of the country very soon. Or maybe there'll be some maintenance fault that won't be your, you know, and, and that was the sort of message that was put across. But if you fire, then believe me, no one else is doing it, and we will come get you, is the message that was given. And I'm telling you what, there were not many. Compared to how many that could have been fired, there were not all that many that were fired. The one weapon, that's the irony, see, that was the one weapon that we were afraid of. We're not afraid of his 50-year-old tanks. We're not afraid of his Korean War or Vietnam War era airplanes. We were afraid of those missiles, both on the civilian populations around as well as our own people. But yet, they didn't actually press the button to use them. Ladies and gentlemen, do you think... Do you think it might be possible that Satan, who is so wily, who is so subtle, who is so tricky, just might be finding ways of keeping our fingers off that button of the one weapon which he fears? Think it's possible? I think it is. I think it is. Now, I mentioned there's one offensive weapon, that's the Word of God. But in all of these things... The one offensive and all the other defensive weapons, the one thing that he spends actually the most time on, that is prayer. That is the thing that makes all the rest of it work. It is the electricity. It is the fuel. It is the power behind all of these things, the whole armor of God. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful for this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That is what empowers everything else. Praying always. It is a feature, a constant feature of the Christian life. It is not a temporary thing. It is not a, a, an aspect. It is not like a vacation. It is not like a diversion. It is a constant feature of the Christian's life. Have you ever been around someone who has the aroma of prayer on them? Do you know what I mean? Nothing you can smell with your nose. But you say, this person is no stranger to the prayer closet. This person has been with God. They have been in serious prayer. Sort of like when Moses came down from the mountain, conversing with God and his face glowed. There's no physical glow, but maybe you know what I mean. Indeed, he says, with all perseverance. 
Now, again, people have a problem with this sort of talk. They say, that sounds like works, brother. You're preaching works. No, I'm not. Paul knew about that. Do you know that? Paul understood that there is something called justification by works, and he rejected it. He wrote a whole epistle called Galatians that was entirely against works. Justification by works. He's talking about something different, ladies and gentlemen. He's talking about the Christian life. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about the mission of the church. And in these things, God makes use of our works. Diligent, hard work. And our prayer habits are most definitely under that heading. It's a battle. You must discipline yourself. That's why first, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. By the way, I should say, it's not just Satan. It's those three, right? The world... The flesh and the devil. And we have to beat that body under subjection. It's given to ourselves. We won't do any of these things. It requires discipline. I know one man who prays for me every day. He, he says it every time he meets me. And I know it's true. You know, the interesting thing is, and please don't, say, don't, don't think that I'm saying that these things always have to go together, but something that I find that sort of makes sense to me is that this man is a marathon runner. He's a triathlete. Even though he's, he's well into his 50s, I think. And I, it under, I, I can get that. I can understand that the same sort of person who would be willing to subject their body to that kind of self-discipline, the same sort of person who would be willing to endure that kind of pain is willing to pray because it is not easy. Anyone who says that prayer is easy is lying to you. And they have not done it. Prayer is the most difficult thing you'll ever do. And each and every time that I, sit, I kneel down or sit down or stand or whatever to do serious prayer, it seems like all the artillery of Satan is directed against me. He's trying to get us not to press that button either. He knows how to do it. He knows how to distract us because everything else will seem more attractive. Everything else will seem more important. And prayer will seem the most dreary and terrible thing that we could possibly do. Paul says we need to fight that fight. We need to run that race. Now, it's not just praying in a non-specific way. It says being watchful to this end, to this purpose. And the larger principle that I draw from what he's saying is that real prayer cannot be vague. It cannot be insipid. It cannot just be floating up in the air. It must be very specific. Again, what is the purpose of the universe? To glorify God. Now, if, we, if you say, Lord... Please bless the missionaries in England. Let me ask you the next question. At what point are you going to be able to give thanks to God and to glorify Him in the answer to your prayer? If you will never come to that point in this life, then that's not a good prayer to pray. Now, if you pray, Lord, enable this church in the, the work, the new work in Hexham, to gather a core group of those who are going to be dedicated and that a certain number of them are going to start going to the mother church in Gateshead. And I come back to you in two years and I have pictures on the wall and show you that happens. We can glorify God together because your specific prayer was answered and you know that God did it. Your prayers have to be specific. They have to be purposeful. 
That's why you should read the letters that we send you. That's a discipline too, isn't it? You want to press the delete button. You're, you're there. You're just going to press the delete button, but don't. Please read our prayer letters. And so we can enjoy Because there's one more thing that there's a secret here. When you pray for these things, you share in the rewards. Okay? When you do these things, there's something in it for you. That in eternity, you will know that God used you doing this work of spiritual warfare to bring about the salvation of the nations. And that is a wonderful thing. By the way, the specific, now that I've, I've said this about you, let me say something about me. The specific thing that Paul is asking here for is boldness in preaching. It says in verse 19, And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, and that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He didn't just say it once, he has to say it twice in as many verses, that I may speak boldly. And you say, Paul! You're the great apostle. You're the one who did all these things. You suffered so much. Are you, are you telling me that sometimes you're tempted to keep your mouth shut? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. And I'm sure that every other minister of the gospel, every other missionary, if they're being honest, will tell you the exact same thing. Brothers and sisters, you say to me, I, I don't know if I can speak to my neighbor or my co-worker. It's, it's, it's a scary thing, you know. It's easy for you missionaries to do that. No, it isn't. It's the exact same thing that you are. Just with a, a, a different job in life. Maybe for this moment, maybe we'll have the same job soon enough. I don't know. But what I'm telling you is that human nature, that flesh doesn't change. We have the Holy Spirit. We may have a different job title. But let me tell you, we are the same in that regard. And you have got to pray that we'd be bold in opening our mouths. Because we could easily spend our time on the missions field doing everything else under the sun, believe me. We could do paper. We could do MTW paperwork until the next time I come back. (laughs) But this would mean that Satan wins. Okay? Satan wants us to keep our mouths shut. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. I open my mouth boldly and do the thing that Satan does not want. The one thing. And that is to open our mouths and speak the mysteries of the gospel for which we are appointed. Now specifically, if we haven't already been specific enough, we, we need to pray that your missionary, you need to pray that your missionaries would stand. Because that's what this is about, that we'd stand. We need to stand in the power of God, but we need, to spend, we need to stand. You know, something that you might not have as much on your agenda, I'm, I'm looking at my own prayer letters, I'm flashing through my own mind, how many times have I said in all these prayer letters where I said, please stand. And God, you, your church, please pray that I would just stand. And I don't know the last time that has happened. And what I'm talking about is there are two ways that we might fall. And one is morally and the other one is doctrinally. Because you can be sure that God, that, that the, the missionaries, the servants of God that are sent to do the one thing that, that Satan most hates, that they're going to be under fire, that they're going to be under attack. And there's two things that Satan can do. He can make them fall morally and he can make them fall theologically. Now morally, that's nothing new But let me say, I'm alarmed at the number of good men who have fallen morally in the recent years. 
Maybe it's just I didn't know about these things before. But it seems like not a month goes by without a new story of some good man preaching the gospel somewhere, doing good work, who falls morally and then he's out. Now, of course, mainly we're talking in terms of the seventh commandment. And it's made so much more difficult in this electronic age that situations that would not have even been dreamt of before exist as ever-present temptations to us all. But you know, it's not just that. It's also the Eighth Commandment, the Ninth Commandment, plagiarism. How many people have been involved in plagiarism? Making false financial statements, etc. All these things. Satan has had a lot of success on these temptations. And he's not afraid to use these things. He fights dirty. You know that, right? He fights dirty. And as Reformed Christians, you need to understand the doctrine of total depravity. Please don't think, oh, you're ni- these nice, happy missionaries. You pat them on the head. They're so squeaky clean. They present such a wonderfully holy face. We are capable of every sin that could be committed. Given the right situation, we are upheld one moment to the next only because God upholds us. And we are upheld by your prayers. You need to think no further than King David. This man who is called a man after God's own heart. And the way he fell. All of us are just one false moment away from such things. And you need to pray that we'd stand morally. And the other side of this, that we need to stand, and I ask that you would pray for us that we would stand is doctrinally. That's the other way that Satan has of destroying good works. In fact, I would say that this is his preferred road. You ask me, why is that? Well, look... If you simply take out a minister, a preacher, by some moral fall, and he's gone. He's out of the picture. And you say, okay, he's not doing any harm there, but he's not doing your cause any good either. But what if you could co-opt him? What if you could give him some false doctrine that he'd start to preach? Well, that's even better. The, the analogy that I use, and I think this is given to us by God, really, is that of a virus. What does a virus do? It's not really there to kill you. It is there to reproduce. It is there to co-opt your body, your healthy body, to take it over. And, and all of your cells in producing more copies of this virus so it can go out and infect everyone else in the whole world if possible. And that's what false doctrine is all about. It is taking over healthy churches and healthy seminaries and healthy denominations and putting some sort of false teaching that it will then spread. That's the work, you see. And the question is, is false teaching a problem today? And I would say it is. I understand Dr. Garner spoke to you regarding the insider movement. And I just speak of one example among many. And I would say that this example of the insider movement, which is rampant in missionary circles, rampant, is just the tip of the iceberg of a larger movement. A larger movement, which is very much a threat to God's church. The idea of contextualization. You've heard it before, I'm sure. Contextualization, whereby we seek to be as much like the world as we know how, because that's the way that the world is going to be won. Now, ladies and gentlemen, pray for me as I seek and others seek to respond to these things 
I do not have the time to go into any depth on this. I just want you to know that such a thing exists and to be praying that it would not take over the church. Let me say, by the way, I mentioned this is dangerous work of being involved in missions. You as a church being involved in missions. Let me say this. Let me say this. What do you think is going to happen if I catch a virus as your missionary, doctrinally? I'm going to come back here and I'm going to preach to you just like I'm doing now. Or I'm going to share with you and I'm going to send stuff that you guys are going to read. And more than likely, you're going to catch that virus too. You need to be praying for me. Now, that is, by the way, in the recent history of the church, that has happened more often than not. You look back at the history of the old denomination, that is precisely how it happened. It happened on the missions field. And these, these winds of doctrinal change came back into the church from that, that source. You need to pray that we'd stand. Because you and I, and all the rest of your missionaries, we stand together. In all good ways and all bad ways. And the rewards in heaven, we pray and not of these negative things. Now last, I just want to reiterate what I've already said and what your minister so faithfully said when he preached at Statesboro. Pray that we would open our mouths. That we would be bold witnesses, both, yes, in preaching and publicly, and also in personally, as was said here when we were giving the, the, the prayer request. It isn't easy. Please pray for us in these things. Let's pray now. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we need your help. We are so weak, desperately weak. And Lord, we have no hope except for you. We pray that you would enable us to be strong in the things that you've given us to be strong. That we would truly pray for one another. That we would do the things that we are called by God to do. And that, Lord, you would uphold us. You would enable us to avail ourselves of the means of grace. The word of God, the sacraments and prayer. And that by these things you would uphold your church, even despite ourselves. And that you would get all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.